Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to A House on Fire, a special podcast series that's being co-sponsored and co-broadcast and distributed by Adventist Peace Radio and uh, the Spectrum Adventist Voices podcast. Thank you for being with us again. My name's Nathan Brown, and I'm a writer, editor, uh, various other things, based in Melbourne, Australia. And with me, Again, for this episode is co-host Dr. Lisa Clark-Diller from Southern Adventist University, Professor of History and also co-director of Adventist Peace Fellowship. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing great. It's fun to be here with both of you. We're excited. Cool, cool. And our guest, which is kind of a bit of an interesting twist, uh, we've been together as the three of us earlier in the series, but our guest on this episode is Dr. Murray Jackson, uh, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. Also happens to be co-editor of a little book called A House on Fire, around which we're building this whole series. But today we're going to interrogate him about his chapter, the chapter that he contributed. How you doing, Murray? I'm doing well, thank you. And I look forward to this conversation. Thank you so much. Lisa, good to see you again. Very cool. So we're working through this book, you know, kind of chapter by chapter, but in no particular order and no uh, necessary promise of completeness. Um, and we come to a chapter by Dr. Maury Jackson, Erasing Sin, Adventist Christianity's Catholic Vocation. Maury, you kick off this chapter with perhaps not the best marketing tactic because you make the comment that the topic, talking about sin and racism is possibly something that uh, inclines us towards apathy. Why did you start with that less than engaging introduction and why do you think that's the case? Thank you. That's an excellent question. I, I, I guess that question came out of my own context of where and how I pastored. So I, I came out of undergrad at La Sierra University studying under Charles Teal and reading Martin King's work and I thought, uh, I'm going to be the next Martin King. <laughs> and and I, I in, imagined myself in a big urban congregation uh, advancing social justice movements. This was during the Rodney King era. And instead, I find myself pastoring uh, in the high desert, about a 600-member congregation. As the young associate, the congregation was probably 85% European-American. And I just didn't seem like I had the base to do my Martin Luther King vision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wonder how Dr. King would have done. He might not have had a good good time in that context either. Exactly. You know, I watched watched what were otherwise celebrated Black preachers come to that congregation, and they were acclimated to a a level of call and response in their preaching that helped to get them up. They, they didn't get that in my congregation, <laughs> and, and the greatness of their preaching seemed to have fallen. <laughs> no, I had learned a lot. In other words, I learned a lot. And one thing I also learned is that 
it's hard for certain communities who don't have the struggle of being the victims of racism to have the stamina to continue a discourse about it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted that reader to know, listen, if by the, if you read to this chapter and you're starting to wear out, I understand. <laughs> I understand. There's, it can, it can build apathy. Mm -hmm. With the hopes that it's a hook that will give me credibility for them to read on. <laughs> That's right. You're sympathizing. You're empathizing with your reader, uh, your long-suffering reader, perhaps by this point in the book. <laughs> right. Cool. Exactly. Exactly. But further down, still on the first page, you have caught my attention because you make a comment that you find significant or unique. Uh, overlaps and layers between sin and racism what what is it that you think you know or that you and you do spend the time in the chapter why is you know what's the why is racism a special kind of sin you know why why are those two why do you interlink those two ideas so you know so closely yeah, so as I as I think about sin and and I I reference Don Browning and and he, he's a practical theologian who really helped me to think about this differently. Mm. We often like to think of sin in terms of you did this bad thing, therefore you you committed a sin. You did that bad thing, so you committed a sin. You did this bad thing, so you committed a sin. And and it could almost move us into a mode of thinking where let me just not do those things, not commit sins, and then I'm I'm actually uh, kind of absolving myself from that category. I'm moving myself away from that category, uh, and the problem is, sin is intractable. It's it, it's almost like I think the apostle says, "When I do good, evil is is right there." Right? Uh, sin is not just in the behaviors; it's in the intentions. And so rather looking at it as discrete acts is the data to say, here's sin. It's really kind of a, a broad brooding pattern of existence that is so intractable and it manifests and pops up in ways unexpectedly. When we're thinking we're doing the right thing, we come to find out, oh, it was bad. It was, it was wrong. In retrospect, we had a conversation about that just before coming on, right? Inevitably, we'll look back and say, ah, now we, we, we didn't get it right. And so for me, racism is the child of sin that behaves like the parent of sin. It too is intractable. It too is one of those things where Oftentimes, the best intentions we have, we come to find out, ah, mm. we missed out on some dimension that ended up causing harm. And so for me, I think of uh, Sally Haslinger, the philosopher at MIT, wonderful book that I, I reference, and, she, and I think Dr. John Webster also references her uh, on, on uh, you know, the social construction of, of reality. And she, she does a great job, I think, in helping to see that people have aims for justice with respect to race, and yet they have different ways of conceptualizing race. So she speaks of the race eliminativist. Mm -hmm. These are the ones who say, we cannot measure race through genotype, through phenotype, through complexion, 
So let's eliminate all kind of all the talk about race. That's the way you do justice. Just stop talking about it. Right. Um, and so they have a just aim. But the race realist who is uh, a natural realist says, actually, we better attend to African-American men in their 50s to make sure that they don't have prostate cancer that's showing up. Uh, it would be unjust to not factor in this kind of racial component that is natural to them that we need to investigate. So that there again, a naturalist versus an eliminativist both have aims of justice. Or a race constructionist says, yeah, it is real, but not real in a natural way. It's real in a social way. And therefore, guess what? We better attend to uh, the way it forms in social society and creates oppressive uh, um, conditions for certain groups. And let's let's dissolve that and and uh, free them. So it's it's one of these things where, like sin, even when we're trying to do good, evil is present at hand. And I think that's how uh, sin and racism have a unique uh, parent-child connection. Mm -hmm. You you also seem to be, if I understood you right, can, uh, the idea of. How, is this an individualized thing versus is it a group collective institutional thing that in some ways, is it any individual person's fault at that? Are we still responsible? You know, like the, that, the, that old saying that people, that, that uh, counselors sometimes say, it's not your fault and you're responsible. Like we live in a sinful world, you know, and I am like a victim of this as much as I'm also a perpetrator. That seemed like you were t making those parallels too. That like you know, it's it we whether there's individual guilt that we can pinpoint to a time or place with with someone racist because you talk about racism without racists and sin without sinners, you know, which you know it sounds like it's like we shouldn't say that that there, but the, in some ways it's also true though. There is racism and there are also racists, you know, like those are there are both of those things, just like there is sin. And there are sinners, and sometimes we are talking about one and the other. Did I understand that correctly? Oh, you did. You captured it very well. In other words, and for me, a part of that development was my my sympathy to Robin DiAngelo mm. and and the work that she has done, and and recognizing that those who have challenged her work and have kind of dismissed it. Uh, we can we can have fair criticism, but we can also have kind of, uh, um, I think, unfair dismissal kinds of criticism. She she's capturing something about the mm. the structural dimension of racism. And I think that's true. I also think if we if we. Hover in the structural, we then don't hold individuals accountable. Uh, sometimes individuals, because of the structural definition, say, well, it's just not my fault. Mm -hmm. uh, what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. And so Don Browning, again, has, has been very helpful for me because he's, he says these, and I use this quote, all of us are equally sinful, but not all of us are equally guilty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And that is an important kind of distinction, right? That, that I can live in a certain structured reality and yet not be as culpable in terms of the guilt mm-hmm. as someone else because I have taken on certain uh, principles that I will live by. Hmm. I appreciate that distinction. And you, well, go ahead, Nathan. Well, I was going to pick up on your reference to white fragility and Robin D'Angelo's work because that has been something that first got some really high-level attention. Everybody was reading it at one point a couple of years ago, and then the pushback came, and then there's been some serious critique of that. Um, Give us your thoughts and your responses to that work and how you've engaged with it in the context of this chapter, but perhaps even a little bit more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I I think of the critique of it kind of the way my my uh, doctoral advisor taught me to to listen to critique. Uh, she said, if no one critiques it, it's because you didn't have anything worthy to be heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think some of the critique that she is receiving is because it touched nerves, nerves mm. that people realize are true. And, and, and I think those who live in spaces that are uh, nuanced, right? Maybe you're a minority black in a, in a majority white context professionally or, uh, a min, you know, a minority white in a majority black context professionally, or you can just begin to, to think of all the different ways in which one finds themselves in a, in a cultural group where they're, they're reading and, uh, being bicultural, as it were, I I recognized, uh-oh, she's hitting something that I think I've recognized, mm-hmm. but I also recognize the challenges that, that would come her way. And so mm-hmm. for me, uh, I, I listened to her. I, let, me, let me put it this way. One of my former, one of the b- best students I had he read her, and I was in Alaska on a summer break, and he uh, was calling me and talking to me and saying, you wouldn't believe this. And this is a, a student who's always, you know, he's he's on the right. Uh, his heart is right. His head is right. And yet certain things were hit, hitting a core that mm-hmm. he was saying, logically, this is a problem. And then I'd say, yeah, but, you know, and I found <laughs> myself finally in a little different uh, position with him that I said, all right, I got to read this book. <laughs> and mm-hmm. after reading it, I, yeah, I mean, I didn't take everything, but I said, I think she's hit up on something. Mm-hmm. So when John McWhorter uh, was coming against her, I realized where I thought her work was actually redemptive was where he thought it was the, the most open to criticism, namely it's theological ethos. And so mm-hmm. I, I kind of take it on to say, yeah, again, I think she's captured it. She's captured it, and it's so offensive and it's so problematic because we don't want the guilt, and we don't we don't know how to n- not associate guilt and and uh, sin. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, McWhorter is saying she's an evangelist. Uh, he's saying she's you know proselytizing. Uh, that it's like uh, it's like a Calvinist doctrine. Don't ever <laughs> imagine that you'll ever you'll ever be free of it, and uh, and we want to be free of it. Mm-hmm. We also want to be free of sin. 
Mm-hmm. So I think of I think of these issues in the same way um, Walter Rauschenbusch in his book Theology, not Theology of the Social Gospel, uh, Christianity and the Social Crisis. He really helped me to 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 res- to settle my soul mm-hmm. and move toward perfecting. In that he said, "Look, no Christian believes that personally we will be perfect before the." the return of Christ on our personal ethics. Mm-hmm. But no one says, so then give up on it. Right. <laughs> we right. say work toward it, sanctify, live in the process of sanctification and grow. Get right. he goes, so why would we in the social sphere say, well, we'll never see the kingdom of God here on earth. So guess what? Don't vote for things that are going to be more just. Mm. Don't get involved in just movements because it's not going to get, it won't get perfect. He goes in the same way that we, we want to sanctify personally. We also should have that social sanctification as we are perfecting towards something we won't get fully in this life, Mm. but we will get some incredible tokens that we, we, will uh, be able to bring into the new Jerusalem. I take this passage in, in in the late chapters of Revelation that says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure their glory is not their goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not theirs anyway. This is natural. This is God's work. But it is the kind of social communities they were able to nurture and the kind of uh, ways in which they could organize communities around justice. So I, I think that in some way we we you have this kind of innocent guilt culture and there's this mm-hmm. I don't want to be guilty and if I can't get out of it, then we gotta dismiss this way of analyzing it. I wanna say, no, this way of analyzing it helps us to attend carefully because it will manifest in ways unexpected. Yeah, we feel I feel like part of the I, I didn't ever really read all of white fragility. I heard so much about it. I feel like I absorbed the ideas without having read it and that it deserves, it deserves to be read. But as I understand it, like that is in some ways the primary way I see it in the well-meaning people. And even in myself um, around me is I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, like, you know, people are like, what words are we supposed to use? to talk about people now because I'm afraid to like acknowledge any kind of physical differences because I'm afraid if I say, I might say the wrong word and then I look like a racist. And so I don't want to talk about it because I'm going to mess up and then I'm going to like, and then I made it worse. And so, you know, and like, what don't, you don't want your children to like notice physical, Shh, don't say it's a black. You know, like, that's not okay to say that, you know, like, because then, you know, we might, you you don't want them, you don't want people to think that you're racist, but, you know, those black people over there are, kids don't talk about race like that. And then it makes it seem like it actually is like this really bad thing. Anyway, I, I do recognize a certain amount of fragility out of, you know, the desire to be innocent, which you're 100% right. I think humans have always had. I see it more and more and more in my students, um, in the young people, like the desire not to be connected to anything that that you have to say sorry for. Like, it's part of why we don't want to join organizations. We don't want to be part of a church, a church that 
might have messed up and have to say, sorry, a political party that isn't always right, you know, a country or a nation state that is messed up or, you know, like we don't, we want to like eschew everything from the past. Not my job, because I'm a historian, is to be like, you, you never get to not have had a history. You don't, you don't get to. You don't get to not have had a history like and your people and where you come from. Like you don't get to not do that. You don't get to go. I'm going to start fresh. I'm just I'm not I'm not with any of those people from the past or that other stuff. So just like me to take me on. That's not a thing that happens. So I feel like a lot of our fragility is this sort of emotional fragility, the desire to be pure, as you as you said, the desire to not be guilty, to not have to constantly say sorry, which I feel like is the fundamental posture of a Christian which is confession, you know, the fundamental posture of a Christian is on my knees confession. And that shouldn't be an embarrassment. That shouldn't be something I, that's just the normal posture for us. No, I, I, mm. I love this. In fact, I would say uh, to, to the, the title of the book was White Fragility. But as I read it, I read it as a discussion about the issue of racism and its totalizing effect. And if it's totalizing, mm -hmm. then that means I'm included as a black man. So I, I, I think it would be interesting if, if uh, some who, who read it from the perspective or location as, as white persons reread it and said, I'm going to read it, but I'm black now. And, and I'm going mm -hmm. to see what it has to say to me about my being a racist. And see if they will have the same reaction, you know, because for me, it became a Socratic moment mm. to be self-critical, to ask, how do I continue in, a, in vigilance, recognizing this is a totalizing problem. It's not just a problem that certain mm. groups have. It's a problem we all have. Mm. And I look at it the same way. It is a way in which I describe what it means to exist as a human being. <laughs> and mm. so whether whether you are uh, the most refined and the most yeah. developed in your virtues, you still are a sinner. And 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 mm. to the degree you are conscious of that, you are you you are able to keep your vigilance up mm -hmm. to the degree you you are um, uh, in a kind of false consciousness of, of about not being a sinner is the degree to which. Others can see the manifestations of it all over you. Hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. And I think when we zoom back out again from, you know, focus on that particular text to, you know, the bigger issues you're discussing about the nature of sin. And, you know, we get into these heavy theological kind of topics. And then we, you know, I think that we would argue both that we can apply that by analogy to racism but also there is the the same theology of racism and so we're almost doing two things at once there but it also gets down to this you know we're talking about the systemic nature of sin and the systemic nature of racism and of course that's a one of the contested aspects of the uh, discussion of racism in the in the world today is you know how dare you talk about systemic wrongs you know, you know, that's just blaming us all for something that a few individuals have done historically or even currently, um, you know. And then it also, at the same time as we do that, we also push ourselves and say, well, if it's a systemic problem, then it's not my problem. Mm. Right. And so 
we tie ourselves in all sorts of knots to try and wiggle out of taking responsibility, but also at the same time, we don't have a big enough understanding of what we ought to be taking responsibility for. And I, uh, just in something else I was reading recently, I came across or was reminded of uh, Gutierrez's uh, definition of sin in uh, a theology of liberation, where he talks about sin is evident in oppressive structures, in the exploitation of humans by humans, mm. in the domination and slavery of peoples, races, and social classes. Sin appears, therefore, as the fundamental alienation, the root of injustice and exploitation. Mm. So, have we, you know, are you actually in this chapter calling for a bigger understanding of sin than perhaps, you know, if we're talking about in our Adventist context and some of our, you know, our proof texts of sin? Are we actually looking for a, a bigger understanding of sin, uh, which then has other theological implications to it as well? Yeah, a hundred and ten percent. Let me let me read just something, and then I'll comment. Uh, this mm. is on page eighty-six, where I say we may also ask what excuses or dismissals we make for this broad pattern of experience called sin, as Gardner Taylor put it, a man. All for himself, we do not call a sinner. He is a go-getter and a sharp dealer. We say mm-hmm. with a tinge of admiration, a drunkard is not one who is living life shamefully below his high and sacred potential, but a good timer, a swinger. Mm-hmm. And then I say this very dismissive practice aids in rendering the pattern of sin intractable. Uh, I guess I, I want to say that I like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I tried to to draw on Mm -hmm. his work out of Sanctorum Communio, where he he points out that all of us are the first Adam in the sense that, and the way he describes it, so a a little like, a little different from Gutierrez, right? Uh, Gutierrez is dealing with the oppressive structures. I think the way uh, Bonhoeffer wants to say is, uh, a move away from our primordial state of community. Mm. That the moment we break with any, with community, we've broken the state that, that we were intended to be in. Mm. Whether it's breaking community with God, breaking community with others. And so to the degree that everyone has participated in breaking community, they are also culpable for the sins of everyone mm. else, namely, uh, we were meant to live and work in community together. And if I break it, then everyone else, now their their potentiality has been weakened. They're going to fall mm-hmm. shorter than they could have. And guess mm-hmm. who's responsible for that? So Bonhoeffer says, you, you're the first Adam and I'm the first Adam. And in fact, everyone who participates in breaking community is the first Adam and they're culpable for the sins of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a radical way of thinking. And yet, I think any kind of vision, eschatological vision of the wholeness of humanity. And this is another point that I appreciate of of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says that all of our protology is eschatology written backward. Mm Mm-hmm. So that we, we are basically, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we're not looking at it so much as a historical event that happened. What we're looking at is 
what will look like at the end when God reconciles us the final way we know life should be. And then we project that into the story of Eden. Hmm. And and so so for him, uh, the real question is a question of what what is our vision of what real community and wholeness looks like? And and Hmm. uh, it looks like, yes, individuals are respected. Uh, well, let me put it, but they are particulars in a, in a larger humanity and that there's a common humanity and there's a, all of our potentials, both individually and communally are, are maximized because we are working in a harmony. And to break that harmony is to be responsible for everyone else who can't reach their potential. And I think that's a radical way of putting it. Mm. I think it's, it's uh, that anything less than that way of thinking about it might be a good humanist understanding of human potential, but it falls short of a kind of the- theistic uh, vision of, of what we as the creatures of God were destined to be. Hmm. Two, two follow questions for that. Um, one is connected to the ecumenical kind of uh, idea that you have in there, which seems connected to what you're just talking about. But um, before we quite get to that, you know, how that's connected, I'd like, you know, just thinking about a little clarification, um, because it seems like part of what that means then is we never really do get to feel successful. You know, so like, if I'm tied to like everybody else's well-being, I never get to sit satisfied, you know, like, and sort of self-satisfied or whatever with how things are going and all the good that I'm doing in the world and like how, and that's both like good for me and for my pride and, and it's reality. Also, we sometimes, we need to feel a little bit. I mean, God created us in some ways to feel like we're, something has changed. Something, there's some sort of progress. There's some sort of like, we have to kind of feel that a little bit about something, you know, even though, okay, right. I'm not solving all the problems with drug addiction in the world. You know, like our little program we're doing at our church is a drop in the bucket. Maybe none of these addicts ever actually do fully ever kick all of their addictions. And we just love with them for the rest of all. So then how am I measuring what counts as quote unquote success or, you know, I've done something that I need to do. Cause I mean, I think that both of those things are, uh, you're going on with implied in what you're saying. Like one is like, how then do we, if we're never overcoming sin, how are we ever measuring anything? And if we're never going to overcome racism and we don't want to just feel discouraged about it, where do we feel? And especially given the fact that as soon as I tie my sense of good and well-being to everyone else's in the world, you know, without boundaries, um, boy, someone's hurting somewhere all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. like I never get to, I never get to not have a bleeding heart. And that's also doesn't feel quite sustainable either. No, ah, uh, uh, this is very good. I, now, now, Nathan, now you see why I talked about the opening being fatigue, compassion <laughs> fatigue. It is true. It is true. This is for everyone. Mm. What, one yeah. thing I think we ought to do is we ought to change the language. The language of success, I think, is a language that will, will burn us out. I like to talk about, am I being fruitful rather than successful? Ooh. Because mm-hmm. successful is I done it. Fruitful is I'm, I'm harvesting, I'm planting, I'm, uh, sowing, I'm, I'm, I'm weeding, I'm, and I'm, I'm reaping. 
Mm. And so, you know, it's, it's, we wouldn't want the farmer's job to be done, <laughs> right? But we want the farmer to be diligent and vigilant. Hmm. And and I think that 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 that's a, a kind of metaphor that might be helpful. That when hmm. harvest season comes, guess what we do? We have a harvest festival. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can celebrate our gains. I, I'm the I am the the son of parents who were born under the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They tell stories about not being able by law to drink at a certain fountains. And mm. and yet they didn't want to because they didn't think the people who were drinking out those fountains were clean. That's the, That was also the funny part about it, right? There was this sense of, of, on the one hand, we think you're dirty and we legally had it that way. And then the others are saying, yeah, actually, we think you're d- dirty and we don't want to drink there. But that's now that's that's where we're, we're watching how the problem then gets worse and worse and worse. And that's why I don't think we should think about we've achieved, but rather mm. we need to stay vigilant. We can celebrate our gains. Mm. There's no chattel slavery legally here in the U.S. That mm. wasn't always the case. There's no Jim Crow laws legally in the U.S. That wasn't mm. always the case. There are other things we should be vigilant about. Let's continue. Mm. But uh, but we can be fruitful and 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 celebrate mm. and stay. Vi- I, I hope this is helpful. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's great. Mm. So Lisa did also nod towards where you get towards the end of the chapter in talking about denominationalism and some of the implications of that thinking both directions for this this larger topic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tell us about that and what's formed your thinking in that direction. What inspires you in with that? Yeah, so I like to think of Adventist Christianity in this way. It was a movement that started in my mind in the 1700s this uh when when uh African slaves started to join the Christian faith and know the story of of the of the Christ who mm. was crucified, buried, rose again, and would return. And mm. so when you look at the hymnody of Richard Allen's uh, hymn book in 1801, you find out that these are songs that these folk were singing in the 1700s and they were looking for the return of Christ. So I, I, I want a story Adventist Christianity in the Western Hemisphere earlier mm. than the Millerite movement, but the Millerite mm. movement was also a movement that was very much interdenominational. Mm, mm-hmm. And so uh, I think we, we don't think about the power of the ecumenism that was there uh, as mm. we think in terms of the largest group to have come out of the Millerite movement uh, and have become its own uh, communion of Christians, i.e. Seventh-day Adventists. Mm. And to the degree we are not uh, valuing those early ecumenical roots, it's a lost opportunity to to recognize part of Jesus' own prayer in John 17, that they may be one even as you and I are one. Now, of course, we can be arrogant and say, yes, we'll have an ecumenism of of return. Uh, when you all return to the truest 
church and gospel that we have, then we'll all be one, right? Or or an ecumenism of ill re- repute, let's just all get along. No, we can have an ecumenism of respect, and yet mm-hmm. uh, the need to continue to be ecumenical is the is is I think uh, I think religious denominations are kind of the religious cousin of racism. It's just a way in which mm-hmm. uh, Luther, German Lutherans can group together and and uh, you know. Reformed Calvinist and and uh, Presbyterians. Uh, no, but what about what about uh, Jesus' prayer to be one, mm. right? So I'm I'm mm. kind of a a an eliminativist and a, a social constructionist with race, and I'm kind of the same with respect to uh, um, uh, denominationalism. That this is this is the church by definition is one. And the vision of the church in the eschaton is a vision of one community, uh, the hu- a new humanity recon- reconstructed, brought back together in Christ uh, in, mm. in the eschaton. And so that's one way. The other way, and this is the more uh, radical point of the, of the text, because in sin, I am responsible every time I sin for breaking the wholeness of the community. I am the first Adam and Mm. everyone else is the first Adam. They're responsible for the breaking of the community. Bonhoeffer says Mm. we cannot teach universal salvation as a doctrine of faith, but it is and must always be the Christian hope. And then he says some radical things there that I think are important. We have to stand in like Moses, who when when Yahweh was going to let me wipe this people out, I'll start a new I'll start a new mm-hmm. nation from you. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, if you're going to do that to them, you got to do it to me too." Mm. Ah, now mm. now now God says, "Ah, I got a hold." And and Bonhoeffer says. We have to be that way to be faithful to God. We have mm. to curse ourselves out of the, the blessing of the community because of our faithfulness to God. Mm. And I think that that's a challenge. That's really the advent. That's really the Adventist challenge in my estimation. And I think of, of my teacher, Charles Till, you know, is, is our remnant status a badge we wear or a commission we hold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it's this commission we hold to say, hey, no, we're we're here. So when I put this forward, one 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 of my colleagues says, I don't see the connection between racism and universal salvation. And I said to him, Well, who's gonna help save the racist? Mm-hmm. Wow. It's easier, it's easy for us to just say, well. To hell with you. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's easy for, for, for me to say, well, we have to, we have to save them when I'm in a, in a privileged position. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. in, I've been in disadvantaged positions and I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to say go to hell, right? Uh, I haven't been in the worst of positions like some of my ancestors like uh, some of our Jewish brothers and sisters who mm. were able to survive 
the Holocaust and who lost parents. There's a there's a context in which you yes, we can we can put this hope out only in our healthy moments, our healed moments, but that's exactly the ones who ought to be proclaiming it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the most upsetting things you said in your chapter, <laughs> potentially one of the most upsetting things in the in the book um, has to do with this idea of the lack of boundaries and even denominational identity, like which is so important to us, like our forms of identity that we, you know, we're, which kind of start with like, I'm, you know, I'm, I need to make you like me. I don't think you're right, you know, or okay as you are in any way, you know, like the, 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 the need to like, it, and to basically say, you know, somebody else is, is kind of going to hell. Like if we can do that on some level about anything, you know, it mean it makes it easier for us to do things like, like have, have racism. I know one of my colleagues um, who passed away five, five years ago, or six years ago now, um, as he was dying, um, he was more and more open about his openness to universalism in some ways, you know, like he just, and he was like, it doesn't matter if people don't believe it or not. You know, I don't have a need to like convince other people of it. But as I have moved forward, like this is what I, and his, his wife said she was, she felt like she was being a little subversive and she snuck into his very Adventist memorial service. The, the hymn that has the line, there's a wideness in God's mercy. You know, like she was like, did you see what I did? I put the universalist hymn in there. Like, you know, like I, and, um, you know, just, just because I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't a huge agenda that he had, but he just was like, this is what I have become convinced of that, you know, that we don't know what God is doing. And I definitely do have people I don't think God should be saving. And I don't want to have with me in the new heaven, the new earth, you know, and that's my problem. That's not really God's problem, you know, or there that's, my issue um, right in yeah, fact it was it it was disturbing to, in fact, to be reminded of that yeah yeah people think that well if everyone's going to be saved then i should just behave however i want it wouldn't make it too easy and i said actually it makes it more difficult but more worthy you know so that you 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 can only appreciate the the uh, call for stretching and exercising our muscle of community if you think about the fact that, guess what? Um, I thought I could get rid of this guy. Mm-hmm. And I escaped one direction and he another. And if I realize, no, uh, I'm not fit to go in that direction until I'm here to, to, to hang it out with him, to make it right. That's a difficult thing. I think of people who I, mm. I think of a, a book I read where this clergy talked about um, uh, a member who, well, a congregant who had died and, and he was afraid that it, the family was going to ask him to do the funeral. And they did. Mm. And he said, the reason I was afraid, I thought hell was a fitting place for her to spend eternity. <laughs> hell mm. was a fitting place for her to spend eternity, Right. And to, wow. for us to think that, uh, what if, what if God is really in Christ teaching us to love our enemies mm. and mm. not asking us to do something that God, God's self has not mm. already purposed to do? 
Wow. And when we wow. think of the time that God has available to God, um, uh, another way of, of putting it just in the, in the parental model, uh, this author says, look, uh, if you have a broken fellowship with your children, you will spend the rest of your life trying to repair it. The problem is you're going to die, but you're going to die trying. Mm -hmm. He said, God has eternity. Why wouldn't God spend eternity to rescue all mm -hmm. God's children? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe what God is, is, is doing is helping us learn how to live together as siblings, giving us part of that task. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. this is in the realm of hope. Not in the realm of, of doctrinal faith, but in the realm of hope. And if, if Adventist Christianity is anything, it should be a communion of Christians who, who, who push for hope. And so while I'm against, while I have this kind of resistance to denominationalism, I recognize that there are communions of Christians within the one church. But if we mm -hmm. consider ourselves as a communion of Christians, Adventist Christianity has learned something and has a certain mission about us that we need to continue to push forward. That's a, that's a different tone and ethos than to think of us uh, denominationally and organizationally mm -hmm, in that kind mm -hmm. of way. And I think there's that connotations that lack health come in when we think that way, instead of we are mm -hmm. a communion of Christians among other communions of Christians in the one church, the one body. I think um, Lisa's reaction here is a fascinating one, and not an not you know I'm not picking on Lisa in this context. Simply that she's reflecting possibly, you know, the the broader response to this that this might be one of the most confronting things in the book, because we make the case over many many chapters and pages that racism is a really big thing that we should be confronted by, but it almost feels like. You know, we might be able to make some some progress around the edges of racism, but we're not so sure about this denominationalism question because that might be a bridge too far. And that's a fascinating reflection of how deeply we hold that and how, you know, in, in the Adventist tradition, um, that this might be the thing that actually offends somebody deeply not all the other things that we've said throughout the book. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's almost yeah. laughable in the way that we're talking about it, but it does show how entrenched that, that actually is. And, and, and think about the same people who might have that problem don't have the problem with seeing Joseph Bates, uh, uh, Ellen Harmon, James White, uh, these very, Josiah Litch, all worshiping together. Mm. Mm. Mm hmm but that is the history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is cool. Well, I think we've um, given this chapter a pretty good going over, and um, thank you for sharing us and taking us deeper on that, Dr. Jackson. Oh, thank um, you. You've certainly given us plenty to think about. And, uh, yep. and, and the homework, of course, from this, this particular episode is to go and read the chapter and uh, do some of your own thinking and questioning along those lines. Yes, uh, Lisa, thank you also for being with us and for asking great questions. It was easy with such good reading. <laughs> oh, thank you, That's Lisa. Cool. Thank you. That's cool. So thank you all for being with us for this episode of A House on Fire, the podcast series. Uh, thank you to Adventist Peace Fellowship and Spectrum for sharing this on their respective podcast platforms. 
And uh, thank you for being with us and for engaging on this important topic and continuing with us through this series. I'm Nathan Brown, and we'll catch you next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget.